You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the book of Romans, Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised the dead raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. And I'm going to read Mark 8, 31 to 33. Just 31 to 33. And Jesus began to teach. Everybody say teach. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning, everybody say turning. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, very politely, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. The word of the Lord. This Lenten season that we are in, one of the things I love about Salem Tabernacle is we start off really strong when something new comes to town. And then one of the areas where we have to work is we have to keep that momentum going. We start off really well, but Lent is a long haul. I know what you gave up, but I'm happy it's Sunday again. (laughs) I'm happy it's Sunday again. In the name of the Trinity, I'm happy that it's Sunday again. Lent is a long haul, and I don't know if you can feel it, and I hope that if you're you're not just doing Lent, but entering the spirit of the season, I hope that you're feeling a little bit jagged in your emotions. I hope that you're feeling a little unsettled. I hope that as you fast and as you pay attention to the world, that the things happening in it the things happening in your life, the things happening to those around you. This should be a season where we say, and, and, and again, like we always say, this doesn't really like, 
This doesn't sell records. I try to date myself every time I say something. This doesn't sell, but it is the truth. It's exactly what Stephanie was just saying. We're going to hear a lot today that relates to what Stephanie was just saying. It's nice to be walking in the spirit with those who lead on Sundays. As a big amen. As a big amen when your leaders don't talk to each other, but we're unified in the Holy Spirit. It lets you know, and it lets, honestly, it lets us know that we're not crazy. So it's good to, how many know it's good to know that you're not crazy once in a while? Just a little reminder, just like take a hit on the fact that we're not crazy. It's good to know. I see both of those hands. You can put them down. Lent should be a season where often we're saying, I'm not having a very good day. Because like we said a few weeks ago, health is feeling bad when you should and feeling good when you should. Health is not feeling good when you should be feeling bad. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. It's desired, but it's not healthy. Health is feeling good when you should feel good and feeling off when you should feel off. And during Lent, it's a season where we are supposed to embrace what makes us feel off. And so hopefully you're feeling that. And so what we said for the year is that our vision for 2024 is simplicity. Meaning, waking up by the end of this year and realizing there's no longer any internal competition in, in my heart, in my soul. I'm serving the Lord, and less is getting me distracted from doing that. Amen? That would be a good thing to get to December 31st and realize we are more singularly serving the Lord this year. And then our mission to get there is proactivity. Getting up and doing actually doing, actually making the phone call, actually having the group, actually saying yes to the next test, facing the day, facing your Goliath, facing that job, facing that dark situation. Like Steph was saying today, facing even, Lent teaches us to get ready to face the empty tomb and say to the tomb, you used to have a period at the end of the sentence tomb, but now there's a comma because now more comes after you than before. And so when we can say that of death, we can say that of the bad Tuesday that we had, yes? Last week, as we enter into Lent, as we enter into the season of fasting to make room for the spring of the Holy Spirit in our soul, we fast to enter the wilderness. We fast to enter the places where we fell. We fast to enter our anger. We fast to enter our grief. We fast to enter our disappointment. We don't fast to avoid those things, as Stephanie was saying. We fast to enter those places and find that Jesus is there waiting for us in those places. So many of us, we say, I'm not experiencing God the way I know he wants me to, and it may be because we are avoiding the places in our own life where he is, in our anger, in our frustration, in our disappointment, in our ego, in our selfishness. He's there waiting for us to admit it. And so last week, as we're making room, we talked about how Lent teaches us that we need to be dependent on each other. And I won't recap the sermon. It's there for you to go back and listen to. But one of the things we need to know is that our sin has ripple effects through life and those around us. Uh, I know like my Our children, mine and Jacqueline's children, are coming of age, and I can see all of my worst qualities before me in these cute little bodies regularly, and I'm so thankful to the Lord 
for these two little mirrors that we live with. But you know what else I love? It's so easy for me to say, have you ever seen your sin just ripple across life and you can see the results of your sin in all these places? But you know what we're not as easy understanding? When you heal, your healing ripples across the same places. Your healing changes lives of people you'll never meet. See, when I say our sin hits people that we'll never meet, we laugh and we say, because we get that. But you know what we don't understand? We actually don't understand healing. It's easier for us to hear a message where the pastor beats you over the head with your sin. We don't like it, but it's, easier for, it's easy for us to understand that. It's hard to hear a message of love and hope because we don't get that. When I preach messages on love, I actually have meetings with people who get quite nervous. Pastor, are there no more rules? Who said that? But we start to feel weird when we talk about the love of God because we're used to crime and punishment. We get crime and punishment. We get vengeance. We don't get grace and mercy very easily. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Today, the subtitle of our Lenten Spring series is The Re-Education of Our Passions. How our passions and our desires need to be re-educated. If I was going to standalone title this message, it would be The Cross is Our Curriculum. The Cross is Our Curriculum. So Rowan Williams, uh, who said this about our passions, he said, if I had to try and sum up what the word unholy passions means, in the classical Christian tradition, it seems to me to designate two things. Unholy passions means the uncritical affirmation of the ego and the positioning of that ego in a state of struggle and rivalry, defense against other people. So if somebody says, what, is, what, would, what does it mean to have unholy desires or unholy passions? One, one of the billions of things that that could mean is uncritical affirmation of how I feel. Now, we only know easily two things, either accepting how we feel or rejecting how we feel. We understand those two realities. You know, we always understand extremes. It's why we get activistic. It's why we love drama, because we understand extremes. But, you know, it really is difficult to live in between extremes because you have to use touch. You have to have nuance. You have to know the right tempo and the right note to be singing. It's easy to be quiet, and it's easy to scream. As we say in the Dandriano household, it's hard to learn to talk in inside voices. And every time we're telling our kids to use inside voices, guess what we're not using to tell them that? Anywhere near. The way that we tell our kids to be quiet, people on the playground would be telling us to be quiet. Like, it's hard to find touch. But what we need is not the rejection of how we feel. No one, you should never reject how you feel. And you should never just blindly, uncritically accept how you feel. You should examine how you're feeling. We should be having a conversation with how we're feeling. So that we can educate our desires and emotions. Not reject them and not blindly accept them. But bring them into the curriculum of the cross. Does this make sense? 
bring them into the curriculum. The cross is, the cross of Jesus Christ, is what all desires working the right way looks like. The cross of Jesus is what human desire in its most perfect form looks like. And that's why I made you say the word teach. Because when Jesus went to tell his disciples that the way he will win, the way he will bring the kingdom of God to come to the earth, the way he will defeat the powers of darkness is through him dying. He couldn't just say that to them because they don't have a paradigm for that education. He began to teach them these things. There are times in your life where God will get behind you and he will speak an encouraging word to you that pushes you a little bit faster and a little bit more fervently in the direction that you're generally already going. We love those words. When God gets behind you and says, you know, Doreen, you can keep saying yes to that. When God gets behind you and says, Felicia, you should keep walking in the way that you're walking. He's not reteaching us. He's making sure that we don't get discouraged going in the right direction. So we love when God gets behind us and pushes us because we're already inclined that way. But then there are some times where he has to teach you something, which means he has to stand in front of you like Balaam's donkey, get in your way, smash your leg against the side of the wall that you're trying to get by him on, and he has to oppose you. Here's the thing about Jesus. He opposes you for you. We oppose each other for ourselves. Like, I oppose you for me. But Jesus opposes us for us. His opposition to me. When Jesus is being oppositional, has anybody met an oppositional person? Don't look at me. Has anybody met an oppositional person before? Again, raise your hand if you're married. You know what I'm saying? Like, you've met an oppositional You know, you're all getting better at not shouting out amen when you're sitting next to your spouse. I have to say, this church is growing. Back in the day, we'd say something wrong. We'd say something like, you know, if you're married, you understand opposition. And some lady would be like, amen, sitting next to her husband. And you're just like, why would you dime him out like that? But you're doing a better job. Granted, I just said that in front of my wife. And I'm now going to preach for four and a half hours as to not have to leave here and go home. Jesus has to stand in front, opposed to his disciples, and teach them something. And in his teaching of them, Peter gets up and he rebukes Jesus. Why? You ready? Listen. He rebukes Jesus because he's feeling all the right things. He's feeling all the right things. But he doesn't have an education to hold those emotions the right way. Should we want Jesus to be alive? Yes. Should we want people to come against him? Should we cut their ears off to stop it? No. <laughs> that was the best. Yeah, no. <laughs> the Son of Man is a statement. 
It's a political theological statement. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is making a socio-political statement in his day, 2,000 years ago, using the phrase Son of Man was a phrase that Caesar was using at the time and that the book of Daniel, long before there was a Caesar, was using. And legend has it, generalities of history has it, that Caesar co-opted this phrase, son of man, and was using it for himself. Why? Because he knew that the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah that would be the son of man, and he co-opted the phrase and was using it for himself as a power move. And so when Jesus stands up and says, the son of man, they get nervous, and they think, if you keep saying that, you're going to die. And then he says, the son of man must die. And they're like, what can be right about this? Why would you do that? What you're saying is what we've been trying to avoid. We're looking for someone to come that doesn't say that. Or that says it, but has a lot more tanks and guns behind them when they say it. So he needed to teach his disciples this. Peter reveals that knowing Christ, this is scary for everybody. Buckle up, kids. Peter reveals that knowing Jesus, but not knowing his way, is satanic. Two seconds before this text, Peter said, you are the Son of God, and Jesus says, you didn't come up with that on your own. The Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Then a second later, Peter realizes, I know who he is, but I have no idea his way. And Jesus rebukes him rebukes him because his way is as vital and is as true as who he is. Now, I will throw myself under the bus on this one, but this is true of all of you, but I won't say that out loud. It is. But who I am, who I profess to be, a priest, a pastor, a Christian, is not necessarily my way. You watch me watch a New York Giants football game, and right away you'll be like, we can't go to that church. We can't go there. I can't trust him. Did you hear what he just said? Watch me in the morning with my kids. I'm patient. Watch me at 730. We can't go to his church. We can't let him baptize our children. He's going to hold them under there a little longer, like... When we, when, we, when we make our declarations of who we are, when by the time we show up here, man, we, we are lying. <laughs> Somebody says to me, you know, we have that trunk or treat. Why, why do we celebrate Halloween? Because we celebrate it every Sunday. We dress up like everything we're not when we come to church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Might as well get some candy for it once a year because... Ah, I see what some of you gave up for Lent just now. He's like, he said, candy, kids, let's go. Let's go. We have to leave right now. Peter reveals that knowing Christ but not his way will only ever bolster Peter. It will make knowing who Jesus is for Peter, but not knowing his way, it will make Peter's life better and more powerful, but nobody else's life will benefit because of it at all. No one's life will get better because of Peter's life 
You ready? Controversial statement. In the same way that nobody else got better because of Noah's life. Was Noah obedient? He built an ark before it had ever rained before. Fair? That's obedience. But did he invite anybody else into it? And the minute he came out of it, his family fell apart. Go read it. Beginning of Genesis. You all should have read it in January. Peter knows who Jesus is, but he's cutting people's ears off. And Jesus is healing the ears. saying, Peter, you cannot cut his ear off. If you cut his ear off, he's not going to be able to hear what I say when I go to the cross. He's not going to hear, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not going to hear, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's not going to hear, it is finished. He's not going to hear, I thirst. Peter doesn't understand his way. Because when we know who Jesus is, we can use Jesus to have a better life ourselves. But if we're using Jesus to have a better life ourselves, then we don't understand his way. We just know who he is, and then our life gets better. But our neighbor's life doesn't get better because our life is getting better. One of the last things Marcella read was, uh, and it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then it says right away, but it wasn't for his sake alone that it was counted to him as righteousness, but it was for our sake also. Because the kind of faith that grew in Abraham during his life is the kind of faith that doesn't just bless Abraham, but it blesses those who are in the vicinity of Abraham and his blessings. So a really difficult Lenten question to ask, but a necessary one is, as my life heals, as my life is blessed, as God is sustaining me through trial and grief, as he's getting me through what I once thought I'd never be able to get through, as that's happening, is anyone coming along with me? Is anyone else having the same experience because of me? And if the answer is no, God is not punishing you or condemning you. He is convictingly reminding you and saying, like the first pastor of the church. Like, we're not talking about Judas here. We're talking about Peter. So this makes me, as a pastor, very happy every time Peter messes up. I'm like, oh, thank God. This is healthy. This is good. This is great. I, I, we will all, I mean, personally, when I go to heaven and I see Peter, I'm like, I just want you to know I'm so sorry for being happy every time you messed up. It just made me feel better. But Peter is going to be rebuked into righteousness. Everybody say rebuked into righteousness. We rebuke people at them. Jesus rebukes us for us. Right? When Peter is sinking in the water, Jesus rebukes him and says, Oh, you of little faith. And at the same time he's rebuking him, he's reaching out his hand and he's saving him at the exact same time because there is no difference between the punishment of God and his salvation. He makes right in you that which he punishes. Otherwise, it would just be abusive, right? If you're punishing for the sake of punishing, that's abuse. If you're punishing to correct, that's healthy. God actually does it. So with that thought about re-educating Peter's opinions, I want to focus on the part where, where God says to Abraham at 100 years old, you're going, to have, you're going to have a kid, and this child is going to become a nation of people that is going to bless everyone on the face of the earth. And Abraham, see, we were taught... 
When God says something, you don't examine what could go wrong. You don't examine your doubts. You don't, you don't look at what could go wrong. You just start saying it's going to go right, and you start basically living life like life is a Ouija board, and you're just saying all the right things, hoping that it goes right. But Abraham didn't do that. It says, you ready? It says, no doubt made him waver as he considered his own body as good as dead. Now, you could read that two different ways. You could read it like he didn't have any doubt, or, and I'm going to go ahead and say this is the way that we should read it, the doubt he was having as he considered his own body didn't make him waver when compared to what God said would happen. So the way I read it is God said, you're going to have a son, and Abraham's like, God, I don't want to give you a biology lesson, but I'm 100 years old. I don't think I can do this. And as he thought about not being able to do this, he began to doubt. But as he began to doubt, every one of those doubts, as it hit him, did not make him waver in his faith, but it says he grew. He didn't just have it. He grew in faith as he gave glory to God, who is able to raise the dead. So this is precisely what Stephanie was talking about today. This is precisely what re-educating our passions means. Abraham looked at reality and said, God, based on, I'm looking at me, I'm looking at my wife, uh, this is not going to happen. And as he wrestled with the truth of his doubts, his faith, his desire was re-educated, and he began to listen to this phrase, hope against you see, there was a hope he was educated towards. There was a hope he was acclimated to. And then he began to hope against that hope. He began to develop a new hope from a new place with new categories, which is God can raise the dead. So even if I look at my body and I see it as dead, something good still can come from this. Now, why is that important for us to know? Because some of us look at our job as good as dead, our financial situation as good as dead, our value, our moral self-worth, the banged-up bruises that other people have inflicted upon us, the things parents and grandparents have said that have shamed us and broken us, and we say, I'm considering this, and I don't see anything good coming from this until the gospel shows up. And as we take those doubts and bring them into the presence of Jesus, all of a sudden, no doubt will make us waver even when we look at our own body as good as dead. Something good can come from this job. Something good can come from the grief I'm feeling. Something good can come from this life, this job, this routine that is just blindingly stressful. Something good can come from it. You can look at your dead situation square in the face Accept the feelings it gives you, and while doing that, have those feelings of doubt re-educated by Lent, by Easter, by Pentecost, by Advent, by Christmas, and all of the things that God does in all of those things, and all of those stories, and all of those goodies for us. And it can re-educate. But here's the thing. If we ignore the doubts, if we ignore the feelings, there's nothing for God to re-educate. So you have to take them into his presence and say, 
Rebuke me. Rebuke me. Teach me. What, am, what do you see that I don't see? Somebody said, do you still get nervous? The more comfortable I get at public speaking, the more nervous I get to preach. Because the more aware of this job that I become, the more I realize I can't do this. Sometimes don't want to. You all don't need to know my business, but there are times where I get up here and I feel decidedly unqualified to be talking about the things of God to people. But you have to look at the reality and say, sometimes, God, it's, this calling seems as good as dead. And God says, keep looking at it, though. I'm going to re-educate those feelings. I'm not going to deny them, but I'm going to teach you that it's in dead things that I operate. What, what are the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit says to Ezekiel, can, son of man, can these bones live? And what is his response? You know. <laughs> like, I don't want to say yes, but I'm certainly not going to say no to you. So I'm sure you know, God. If we can look at our bodies, you ready, Salem? If we can look at our bodies, this is the part I want you, I want you to hear this now. Now start listening, okay? Because we're almost done. We're almost done. We're almost done. If we can look at our bodies, and, I, and in my notes, I put if in parentheses because for some of us, that is going to be a hard thing to do, okay? I recognize that. I'm not asking for you to leave here today being able to see yourself well. If you struggle to see yourself, what I want you to leave here today is not trying harder to see yourself better, but saying, Lord, you ready? When I feel bad about myself, what are you up to in those feelings I'm having? I want to say that again. I don't want you leaving here trying to feel better about yourself. Remember what it says in Romans 4. It's not the adherence to the law. It's not people who try to do good and do well that gain traction. Okay? It's not effort. If you have a hard time with who you are, I don't want you to leave here trying to feel better about yourself. I want you to leave here, and the next time you feel bad about yourself, say, Lord, what are you up to in these feelings I'm having right now? And let him answer, and that will be the beginning of healing. Don't rush the impulses. Educate them. Educate them. Feed them with the cross as a curriculum. You look at the cross and you say, life can come from death. So that education, that PhD education, life can come from death. How does that re-educate the way I feel about me? If we can look at our bodies and have a re-education of passion, can we then start to look at other bodies and start to see where good can come from them? See, sometimes we like... And again, you don't have to agree with me, even though this is true. You don't have to agree with me, even though I'm right. You don't have to agree with me. You would be wrong if you didn't, but you don't have to agree with me. I promise you, it's fine. But some of us, and I mean, I can't admit this as a pastor, God forbid, but some of us like to have a person that we hate. Because in going off on them in our mind, we don't have to pay attention to the part of us that we hate. But odds are that the person we hate the most is really just someone who reminds us of everything we don't like about ourselves. 
That's why we get the most mad at our kids. They're walking images of who we are. Theo, how could you do this, Sophia? Why why would you even think to be that dramatic? Hmm. Hmm. Stephanie's having this beautiful moment. And Sophia starts the Velcro on her shoes. And I'm like, there's going to be a homicide at Salem Tabernacle today. There's going to be a- Stephanie's over here when you're frustrated, <laughs> when you're disappointed. John's over here playing whatever heaven is playing. And Stephanie's like, sometimes you just got to bring it to the Lord. And I'm like, these shoes, I'm going to tear these shoes off her feet. <laughs> like, you have to look at yourself and be honest and say, I'm glad something good can come from something dead. Amen? Hmm. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> here, uh, I'm, 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 I'm closing. I'm closing in on the, on the runway here. Uh, another quote from Esau Macaulay. I'm reading a book of his called Lent uh, as we speak. That's why you're going to hear a little bit from him. He says, Ash Wednesday, then, reminds us of one of the things it is easy to forget during the course of our journey with God, the stepped-on people of the world. Ash Wednesday reminds us of one of the things it is easy to forget during the course of our journey with God. What is it easy to forget? The stepped-on people of the world. They are the people whom Howard Thurman called the disinherited, those with their backs against the wall. Our jour- now listen to this. Our journey toward God over the 40 days of Lent includes a journey toward the suffering because that is the place where God may be found. I want you to hear that two different ways. The suffering is the place where God is to be found. Well, how does Esau Macaulay know that? Not least from his own personal experience, but also from the gospel stories. You want to find Jesus? Go to where the tax collectors and sinners are. You want to find Jesus? Go to Lazarus's tomb. You want to find Jesus? Go to the man who was just kicked out of the synagogue because he was healed. You want to go to Jesus? Go to where everybody that is oppressed by imperial Rome is, and Jesus will be there. There's a prophecy of this in Adullam's cave in the Old Testament where David is on the run and everyone who comes to him are those people who are stressed, in debt, and depressed. They find their way around David because there's something about the Spirit of God in us that should attract people whose backs are against the wall, who are stepped on people, because it should be our job to remind broken people that not only are you meant to be healed, but God is existing in your life, and I need to be around you and your brokenness because I need Jesus. I want to say that again, though, because when we meet people that we would call broken, our broken reaction is we're here to heal them. But that is not the primary reason why God has you in the life of somebody who's broken. You ready? Here's a preaching point. God has you in the life of somebody who's broken, not to make their life better, but for you to touch the hem of Jesus' garment in their brokenness, because Jesus is their brokenness. When you gave a cup of cold water to the least of these, you gave it to. When you visited the prisoner, you visited. He didn't say when you visited the prisoner, you did what made me happy. He said when you visited the prisoner, you visited. So I, don't, I, I, I need to go to where brokenness is, not because it's my job as a Christian to heal it, but because I get to meet Jesus there first. 
And you know what? Something tells me that when we are around people who are broken and we're meeting Jesus in them and they're meeting Jesus in us, the healing will just start to take care of itself. But here's the second way I want you to hear it. Because if all I did was preach that way, we would get a little elitist, wouldn't we? Salem, God is sending you out to the broken people of the world. I was getting mad at a Velcro shoe today, and we're, I'm talking about broken people. How shattered am I? There are people whose lives are in pure hell, and they wouldn't have heard the Velcro because they just need to be melting at this altar. So what kind of privilege am I walking in when my big issue for the day is a Velcro sneaker? I'm broken. I'm broken. I'm pretty convinced that Stephanie lingered in that altar call today because I needed to hear that part. How good is your life, Pastor Bill? that your big issue today was your daughter's sneaker. Look at all these people weeping. You're worried about a sneaker. I'm broken. That's brokenness. That's sin. That's something I need to repent of and and not just say sorry for it, but say, Lord, where did that come from? Where's that kind of distraction come from? What am I avoiding? What didn't I want to hear during that altar call today that I let myself focus on a sneaker? Listen, if, here, here's, here's our deal. If I'm going to put my business out there, you better repent when you get home from something from yours. Otherwise, I'm not telling you my secrets anymore. If we want to have this relationship with each other, you better go do something with it. <laughs> Somebody just said I love you anyway. Like, ouch. <laughs> listen, 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 listen. For those of you in the room who feel mightily broken, you are holy ground in your brokenness. In, not when it heals, not as it's starting to heal. In, what, what did Howard Thurman say and, and Nisal Macaulay said? We go to the broken because that's where Jesus can be found. So that's also a statement to those of us who feel broken and horrible about who we are. You in your brokenness are a dwelling place for Jesus Christ. You are a sanctuary precisely in your brokenness. And it is recognizing that and knowing that where doubt can have a conversation with faith and they don't have to be enemies. Invite your doubt to sit down with your faith and have a conversation with each other and watch what grows in the presence of that conversation. Uh, worship team can come on up here. How do we know that we need the cross to be our curriculum? How do we know if we need something to be reeducated? I'm going to give you three ways. Number one, <laughs> our automated actions override our declarations. Our automated actions override our declarations. Simple point. January 1st, I'm going to eat better this year, is a declaration. But something tells me our automated actions tend to override our declarations. Am I the only one in the room? Oh, now all of a sudden you all want to be quiet? Going to leave me out there? Everybody say auto, and everybody say mate. How many love when you call and you desperately need to work on something with customer service and you need to do it now and you get an automated person on the phone? If you would like, and you're just like, operator, 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 zero, 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 pound, operator, pound. 
I'm that guy. Like, whoever's on the other end of that is like, he just hit zero 11 trillion and a half times. But listen to this. I'm not going to get too into this, but we all know what the word mate means, right? Like when animals mate, y'all know what it means? Had the conversation before? Okay. Think about automation. It's something in you is auto-mated. You have a thought, and it immediately mates without you even being around. And those thoughts are mating left and right, and they're creating children of thoughts in your mind. And that by the time you become aware of how you're thinking, your, your thoughts got great-grandkids. Can anyone relate to this? By the time you even realized you were having a conversation with yourself, you have a genealogy of thoughts. Right? We have to break the algorithm of our auto-mating system. That's what fasting is. That's what Lent is. That's what Jesus in the wilderness is. He's pushing back against the way that you think when you're not paying attention. The call to Lent is not to heal. It's to become self-aware. Okay. Two, cross is our curriculum. When we need the cross to be our curriculum, it's when we think acceptance of a person means affirmation of all of their choices. This works on a couple different levels. Some people think that to accept somebody, you have to affirm everything that they're doing. Years ago, I got called. I was at a Beacon uh, event through the United Way, and there was like maybe three or 400 people there, and I walked in, and I sit down, and I'm like, this is nice. I'm just going to listen, and the the senator running the meeting was like, oh, Pastor Bill is here. Why don't you get up and say hi? What do you think about unity? And I'm like, what? I think I just want to sit here and be unified to my chair. So I get up there and I say, stand up if you're married. And a whole bunch of people stand up. And I said, now sit down if you and your spouse agree on everything. And I was like, no, we don't. And I said, so what you're saying is a good marriage has nothing to do with agreement or disagreement. It has to do with a unity that's greater than those things. And I said, that's what I'm praying for. And I got out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> Accepting a person does not mean you affirm all of their choices. It doesn't mean you have to. And if you're looking at a church, if you're judging a church that's saying we accept people, don't, don't immediately assume that means the church affirms all choices. We are called to accept the personhood of every person we meet ever in our life. And then let the Holy Spirit work on everything else. As he will, when he will. But this also goes for yourself. You can accept yourself, and that doesn't mean you have to accept everything you've done as good. But you can't work on the things you want to change until you accept who you are today. Until you meet God in what he's doing, which is accepting who you are today. We need those feelings re-educated. I can accept myself today. And because I can accept myself, I can later on talk about why the shoe got me mad. But if I couldn't accept myself, I'd be coming up with excuses about what Sophia did wrong. Just you make all the connections. When I can accept myself, I can see what I did wrong. When I can't accept myself, my life is about pointing out what everybody else is doing wrong. Mm, okay. And then finally, we need the cross to be our curriculum when our truth only comes 
from our initial conditioning. Some of you were raised and you were abused as children. And slowly in life, the Holy Spirit will show you that your initial conditioning is not what's true of you. What they said and how they treated you is not what's true of you. But it will take work to work through that. Many of you were raised in fundamentalist Christianity. You need to know that what's true about morality, what you initially learned about morality or what it means to be a good parent or what it means to have good kids, it needs to be re-educated. Writing this, I realize I got to go back to grade school when it comes to my desires and opinions and thoughts about the world and have a lot re-educated because so much of what I think and so much of what I do and so much of what I'm passionate about has everything to do with initial conditioning and not my own thought process. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Do you remember when Jesus turned from Peter and I made you all say turned? Ron, come over here for one second. And let's have Jacqueline come over here for a second. Let's pretend, let's pretend Jacqueline is Jesus. Not, not hard to pretend that. And let's pretend Ron is Peter, which isn't so hard. That's a compliment. Not in this story in particular, but that's a compliment. So Peter faces Jesus and says, and rebukes him. And what does it say Jesus did? He turns from Peter, right? Jesus turns from Peter. Now, should we be following Jesus? Should we be following Jesus? Do you notice that Jesus turns from us in such a way that it puts us in the position of following him? He doesn't turn away from us the way a dad may have turned away from you and left forever. He turns away from us in a way that puts us in the position of a disciple. When Jesus turned from Peter, it made Peter a follower right where Peter had to be. That's the, you guys can sit down. That's the kind, or stand up, whatever. That's the kind of turning he does. If you feel like, Jesus, I feel like he's rebuking me. I feel like he's turning from me. All he's doing is saying, you can't get behind me, so I'll turn for you. And I'll put you in a position. Now, I want to say, because that got better results than I thought it would, (laughs) that that little piece of information came from the one and only Dr. Christopher Green, who says all the good things, I suggest you go on Amazon and get this book called Lenten Homilies by Chris Green. It's amazing. But he's the one who points out that when Jesus turns, he doesn't turn in a way that banishes you. He turns in a way that makes you a follower. And then he just starts walking. And the allure of Jesus pulls you along. So maybe he's turning from you right now. Maybe right now as we're preaching this message, you're thinking of areas where he's turning. But it's not the kind of turning that's abusive. He turns from us in a way that completely accepts us, that puts us in a position as a disciple. And then we can follow him. And you've heard me say this at every baby dedication we do. And if we turn from him, the Bible says that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. He'll turn from me and put me behind him. But if I turn from him, he'll turn back around and follow me all the days of my life until I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed that you turned right into darkness. You turned right into betrayal. You turned right into the atmosphere of doubt. And you offered your body to the grave. You offered your body to the things that make for death. You offered your body to violence. You offered your body to the sword. You offered your body to the sword in a way that turned it into a plowshare. You offered your body to death in a way that turned death into a womb of new life. You offered yourself to betrayal and turned it into repentance. You offered your life to fear and turned it into honesty and courage. And you invite us every week to stand with you on the night that you were turning into all of the darkness. And when you turned from your disciples to go to the cross, you left them with a meal behind you. And you said, this bread is my body. This wine is my blood. And it will sustain you in following me until we're sitting down together and all the nations of the world are blessed. Not one over against others, but when, as it says in your word, Father God, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread that's behind me and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. Descend on us also. Forgive us of our sins and anoint us for this task of the ministry to bring glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit wherever we go. And I pray that we would bring that glory into our own darkness and into the darkness of other people's lives. Not through coercion and not through violence, but through invitation, generosity, and service. You served us to death so that we could serve others to life. So I pray that you anoint Salem Tabernacle to do just that. Help us to be a place where we are becoming human in the image of Jesus. And when we leave here, we are humanizing other people into the image of Jesus. In your name we pray. And everybody said. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.